0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: The Collective has located us. A Borg vessel is on its way.
0: We will be one with the Borg again.
2: No! I do not want to rejoin the Collective. Agreed.
0: That is in violation of all established protocols. Forget the protocols! You're not a drone, you're a person like us!
3: You have a name, a life. All you have to do is embrace who you really are.
0: No, I do not exist. I am only part of the greater whole.
2: That's what they want you to believe. That's what they want us all to believe.
0: We are Borg. Our primary function is to serve the collective. Not anymore.
4: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 10th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an
3: hour of discussion that's not all right, it's just right.
4: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the everything will be all right. And of course, how can we not speak to the unspeakable result of Tuesday's American election, which we will do shortly. Right after, reminding everyone that you can write us at feedback at org, Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, where you can access all of our past broadcasts and two issues we just want to mention very briefly in our first quarter of the show relate to elections and we'll be following up on both of these issues in much greater detail in upcoming broadcasts in the second half of the show we're going to be dealing with the issue of how do we make our politicians do what we want them to do in a democracy which was a question that one of our listeners murray has asked and we'll deal with that in the second half of the program So, Robert,
3: what's next after the victory of Donald Trump in the election on Tuesday night? Well, don't we live in interesting times, Bob? You know, the election's history now. And the real uh, winner, I think, this time was not necessarily Trump. It was the American people for a couple of reasons. If Hillary won, I would have said the same thing. The American people won because the election exposed and rooted out the corruption and rot, not just in Washington, but in the mainstream media. Um, It exposed criminal organizations and people willing to commit violence and fraud to effect change rather than allow a free vote. And I think that is of immeasurable value for future elections and for the people of the United States to understand. No longer will they be able to listen to Anderson Cooper on CBC or any of the other uh, talking heads on MSNBC or any of the other mainstream media and believe them. It's like in the Soviet Union back in the days of Pravda. You picked up that newspaper and you knew that whatever was said in it was the exact opposite to reality. And that's what the American people have learned from this election: is to critically analyze the mainstream media's message, and that message is not always uh, the truth and conform to reality. It's funny you say that because I consider the media as being the real,
4: the mainstream media as being the real loser of this election who in attempting to call the shots ended up completely disconnected from what was happening right around them. Totally right? disconnected. Because when you get too close to it, you're, you're no longer being objective, and you can't be. How did we get it so wrong, asked one American radio commentator I heard on Tuesday night. And I was listening to uh, WLSAM uh, 890 in Chicago, which I picked up on my radio just to hear how Americans were were absorbing this whole thing. The media was in total shock, and I'm sitting here. Wait a minute. I ex- I actually expected a Trump landslide. Okay, my shock is that Hillary got as many votes as she did. Well,
3: I think if you take away all of the voter fraud, which undoubtedly occurred, um, I think that she did not win the popular vote, and I think that it was probably much more of a landslide than you than than we give credit for. Um, a lot of this election was indeed rigged, and I think that there's going to be proof of that out there. This past week, I have to admit, Robert was too much to bear for me as the
4: local conversations on all the AM talk shows just degenerated into the most juvenile, irrelevant, misinformed
3: gibberish and
4: outright BS. I couldn't take
3: it. You know, there was a uh, when I the day after the election yesterday I was listening to uh, CNN radio on the on the way to work and they had on the campaign chairman of uh, of Donald Trump's campaign and she gave a message to the journalist. She said, "You guys have to stop talking about you know, to uh, yourselves and start talking to the American people because the two are not the same. Journalists at CNN have no idea what mainstream America yeah, they don't even is need, about. They don't even need to
4: do that. They just need to, to do some bloody
3: work. Be a journalist. Look up the facts. I, I,
4: I've been watching this now for years, right? Not just this, this election, everything from Bill Cosby on down, mm-hmm. all the stories that are told in one skewed way that are not that way at all, all right? And they had expectations, didn't they? Yes, they did. And, and the expectations were, of
3: course, completely wrong. You know, at a time like this, it's worth noting that, you know, which rats are going to quickly desert the sinking ship? And I expect fleets of paper shredding trucks to be pulling up to government offices throughout the U.S. Let's hope that the swamp drains itself first, ra- and you know, rather than have to go through the expense um, of billions in court fees. Because if Trump is true to his word. There should be a major shakeup and a lot of people afraid right now. And as I tweeted um, during the election, I, I said Hillary Clinton is now officially a flight risk. <laughs> know. So you're still saying that some of the votes
4: were still rigged and, and that they still that Trump won despite that. Then, essentially.
3: Oh, I think In Trump some, would, have, yeah. would, would The margin of Trump's victory would have been greater. Mm. I mean, there was so much recorded actual evidence of Voter fraud uh, during the election, and especially during the early election, that um, it's obvious. Mm-hmm. And 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 for such an amount of voter fraud to be evident, and clearly demonstrated, that's only got to be the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's obviously in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, of all the dead people who voted, people who voted multiple times, people who are voted who are bust in according to that uh, Americans for Change. A director who said, "Yeah, we bu- we bust people in," mm-hmm. you know. They they even said that they're rigging the election, and people—it's odd, you know. This, this is what I find psychologically interesting: is that when you hear it from the horse's mouth that the election has been rigged, and you tell a Democrat that it's been rigged or a socialist or whatever, and they just deny it—they flatly yeah. refuse to to believe, even when it when they're being told by the people who are doing it, that it's being done, and they refuse to believe it. That, That is like a religious faith. But going forward, and I really despise that statement. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I said it, but in the future, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the future, we are going to hold Donald Trump's administration's feet to the fire, I think. Oh, I think so, Because he's got yeah. a lot of yeah, policies. Now that he's elected, now we, now, now we, can, now we can complain about him. <laughs> That's right. He's got That's a lot right. of policies I disagree with vehemently.
4: But uh, speaking of rigged elections, we had our own little experience here in the past week, didn't we, Robert, that We, we did in Ontario, because we had our own little local example of what you could call election rigging to some degree or other, but it was more blatant than that. I don't know if it qualifies as rigging. But we ourselves have just experienced an electoral event in the province of Ontario where the Freedom Party was slated to be on the ballot in two current by-elections, but which is now only one by-election in which Freedom Party has a candidate, Ottawa Vanier, where David McGrewer is running, doing great there. Now although the Freedom Party of Ontario officially endorsed two candidates, one for each electoral district, and although both candidates met the required filing of 25 valid nomination signatures a day in advance of the deadline, one was rejected and not permitted to run. On grounds that were obviously false and arbitrary, and we know that now. So briefly, our nominated candidate, Jeff Peacock, filed his required valid 25 nomination signatures a day early, but was contacted later that three of the signatures were invalid because the signatories did not live in the electoral district. Now, since I'm the chief financial officer for Freedom Party's candidates, Jeff wrote me, and I quote, Bad news. Signatures weren't accepted. I got 25. The 25 I got were people I know, so I was confident... That it would go through, but they threw out three. The system to check addresses was down, so they did it manually, and they said three weren't in the riding. I know them all personally, so I know they're within the riding. <laughs> okay. So now and he felt guilty that he didn't collect more. And turned out Jeff was absolutely right, but in the interim, Freedom Party filed a complaint, still in advance of the deadline, and Elections Ontario's Sarah McMillan accused FP leader Paul McKeever of escalating the issue. Oh, how How dear,
3: Paul, (laughs) demand justice or retribution. uh,
4: Escalating the issue. And that was followed by a call from Director of Compliance and General Counsel at Elections Ontario, Jonathan Batty, who asked McKeever what remedy Freedom Party was seeking. After simply asking that Freedom Party's candidate be placed on the ballot, thank you, we were duly informed that the ballots were already printed and that's pretty much where things stand right now. Freedom Party's issued a media release to all members of the media and to the Ontario Legislature, and I guess we'll learn soon just how really interested either of them is in the so-called democratic process that they also publicly worship. I don't think we're going to hear too much from them, but you never know, maybe somebody might come to our help seeing that they could be next in this whole election-rigging process. It's, It's disgusting, Robert. It truly is.
5: Now, you notice there is no teleprompter here tonight, which is probably smart because maybe you saw Donald dismantle his prompter the other day, and I get that. They're hard to keep up with, and I'm sure it's even harder when you're translating from the original Russian. Events Give not only the candidates a chance to be with each other in a very social setting It also allows the candidates the opportunity to meet the other candidates team Good team I know Hillary met my campaign manager And I got the chance to meet the people who are working so hard To get her elected There they are The heads of NBC, (laughs) CNN, CBS, ABC, there's the New York Times right over there, and the Washington Post. They're working overtime, true, true.
3: A Facebook post of our show last week garnered this one comment which I have to elaborate on. Carol from Saskatchewan wrote, this is an alt right site. Beware of their Kool Aid. Mm. I saw that. Yeah,
4: and I and I called you up and I said, Robert, what's alt right? I, <laughs> I had no idea, and I've never
3: never been called an alt right before. I'd heard mention of the alt right term before, or alternative right, a few months before that, but didn't really know what it referred to. Um, it was just a term out there that I was familiar with, but didn't know about. It seemed to be a small group of disaffected Republicans or conservatives. That was the extent of my knowledge at the time. So I thought I'd learn some more because we were just called a term. And I thought maybe it's, maybe I should know what, we were just being called. I I had the impression, of course, that it wasn't a good term. (laughs) So thanks for that, Carol. You've uh, educated me. Now, about the alt-right. The alt-right is indeed a group of disaffected conservatives or Republicans who have been quite active on sites like Twitter, 4chan, and Reddit, Um, There's no leaders that I could discern of the group. It's a very amorphous group. It has a lot of different ideologies within it. There's no manifesto that I could see, no real doctrine. It's composed of many ideologies and can't properly be pinned down, much like any other label, like conservative or liberal. I mean, it's very difficult to pin down what it means. Um, But the group, the movement, the label has been taken over by the left, to mean only one thing, and that is racist. Alt-Right has now become, for better or for worse, or for whatever it stands for, a pejorative, an insult. So thanks for the insult, Carol. Yeah. It's typical of the left to call anyone with what, whom they what? disagree a racist. <laughs> why, why would she call us that? What did we say? Because it's typical of the left. <laughs> yeah, but we didn't say any, we weren't even talking about race. What what was she talking about? No, I think it was perhaps because um, that particular post was uh, analyzing Trump's uh, electoral chances. Oh, and so, if you
4: say anything favorable, you're a racist. Yeah, yeah apparently
3: okay. so, yeah. So the left now has a new thought, slur to hurl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the alt-right doesn't appear to be a very wide movement, but it does seem to have a lot of influence. Influence enough to become a term people have heard of who are interested in politics, but not necessarily influential enough as yet to be a household term. Let's hope it stays that way. From the, uh, the Reddit site for um, alt-right, I gathered the following description of themselves, or at least one particular group of alt writers. Quoting, the alt right, unlike the dominant ideology of the 20th century, liberalism, conservatism, examines the world through a lens of realism. Rather than continue to look at the world through the ideological binders that liberalism imposes in its dogmatic evangelism of the. E- <laughs> egalitarian (laughs) religion. I have to laugh over this definition. It's amazing. We prefer to look and examine social relations and demographics from a perspective of what's real. Thus, racial and sexual realism is a key component of the alt-right, perhaps the key component that ties the diverse factions within it together. So they already admit, Bob, that, of course, that they are a diverse group, but the one thing they seem to have in common, at least to this one a uh, person on Reddit, is they realize that there are racial and sexual differences. Well, as far as sexual differences go, vive la différence, I say. As far as the racial differences go, yeah, it's black and white. But what does that mean? I'll, I'll, I'll continue with their description of themselves. Quote, another core principle of the alt-right is identitarianism. Now, that's a new one on me. Identitarianism is the prioritization of social identity, regardless of political persuasion. Thus, the alt right promotes white identity and white Nationalism, as a counterculture, we've developed a plethora of in jokes and terminology. For a guide to the lexicon, please refer to blah 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 blah. Is that,
4: that all right? Describing itself is that how you're? Yes, that's not this. possible. They're, they're, that's insulting to themselves. Uh, even on on face of it.
3: Yeah, I think I think the thing is, and I've been talking to. Uh, they think that's nice. Uh, someone who, who who knows about them uh, a little more in depth and been following them. Although this person is not an alt writer. He thinks that some of them, because of all the memes they put out of Pepe the Frog and stuff like that, they're very clever. They're very clever. The left have called them tech savvy. And you know, they really are. They know what pushes people's buttons and they're getting out there and they're pushing them. I think they're having a lot of fun with it, though by their own admission, they are something that I have no affiliation with and no sympathy for. That kind of an ideology is absolutely evil. So using their own definition, alt-right is racist. Now, anybody who has heard any of our programs, and by the way, there's 477 of them in the can so far, and you can get them on our website, justrightmedia.org. Just search for racism and anything like that, and you'll find out what our stand is on that. You'll know that it's a form of collectivism. It is perhaps the easiest collective to be a member of and probably the most ancient of collectives since one tribe happened to bump into another tribe. Just Right, of course, is not collectivist. We see racism as irrational, morally repugnant, and easily refuted as a political motivation. We can say this about any form of collectivism. And we have. But the comment on being alt-right, while an unjustifiable slight by someone too lazy to find out what Just Right is really about, does serve a purpose. It's given me the opportunity to talk about political labels. Political labels are something Bob and I have long experience with. When I first joined Bob's Freedom Party of Ontario back in 1986, he had already published one of FPO's first recruiting pamphlets of literature called Maybe Politics, which was a short for Maybe Politics Doesn't Interest You. But part of the Maybe Politics brochure was an attempt to break from the traditional labels of politics, such as conservatives, liberal, left-wing, right-wing, or libertarian. We... In the Freedom Party, were none of the above. We were individualists. We were rejected any form of political collectivism. Ironic in the one sense in that a political party is a form of a collective. Uh, I'm, I'm, re- I'm reminded of the, the in-joke don't, don't, don't. that the personal friends of Ayn Rand shared among themselves. Being individualists, they gathered regularly at Ayn Rand's apartment to discuss philosophy, and they tongue-in-cheek called themselves the collective, right? You know, so there's. Well, there's of course, that. when we speak of collectivism, all isms mean force. So yeah.
4: collectivism is the forced collective. Mm-hmm. All other all other collectives are voluntary
3: collectives. You know, collectivism as a political label is different from the natural comradeship one shares with people of like mind, and that's what I felt like when I joined the Freedom Party, or when I um, meet with Bob to to have this show. We're not a collective. We're comrades, you could say. Uh, using a a rather Soviet type of term.
4: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's
3: it's correct. There's no desire or compulsion to suggest that the nature of political freedoms we all enjoy or our rights should come about as a function of being part of a group, but by being an individual. Those who believe themselves to be part of the alt-right are just as much statist and collectivist as their other statists and collectivists, the ones that they're in opposition to. It appears from my cursory reading into this movement that they exist in part due to the racism found on the left by groups like Black Lives Matter. Their rationale is that if race is going to be part of the political debate, then so be it. Alt-right is a reaction to racism fighting racism with racism. Political labels are a constant struggle struggle to understand. And, uh, you know, this comes from the myriad of political opinions. A single person can hold at any given time on any issue, which might change as that person integrates new knowledge about the issue. There are many dyed-in-the-wool conservatives. But I know many conservatives who would disagree on many issues. There are blue Tories. There are red Tories. There are conservatives and paleo-conservatives. So what is the iconic definition of conservative? There are progressive liberals and classical liberals. The definition of the labels keep changing between people and over time. A conservative of today is most likely to fight in favor of keeping socialized medical programs, while the conservative of 50 years ago would never have supported such statist programs. The liberal of 1900 would have died to defend your right to free speech while the liberal of today would probably be the one to kill you for your speech or at least pass a law to have you locked up for offensive speech. You know, it's been my experience that political camps or political philosophies can be broken into two main collectivist and individualist. Collectivism encompasses almost all of the political philosophies which have been described as being either on the left or on the right, it includes communism and fascism. Two political philosophies May many think are diametrically opposed to each other, and yet they're both collectivist. They share that in common. They are not individualist. Anyone advocating the superiority of their race over the race of others or the gender over the opposing gender is a collectivist. Anyone who advocates we treat aboriginals different in a court of law because their race is a collectivist. Anyone who suggests that the 1% is getting rich on the backs of the 99% is a collectivist. Anyone who pits one class of people against another class of people is a collectivist. Hillary Clinton is a collectivist. Donald Trump is a collectivist. To me and other individualists, collectivists have the following characteristics in one form or another and to one degree or another. Collectivists are altruists. They believe that the individual must sacrifice for the good of the whole. Collectivists are racists. They believe that a person's genes make them oppressors or victims. To the leftists, a white person is an inferior oppressor of privilege, and a black person is a victim deserving of special treatment. To an alt-rightist, a white person is superior to a black person, and they should be segregated. Collectivists are sexists. To a progressive, a woman deserves special treatment in family law cases, for example. A woman deserves more pay based on her gender and statistics rather than on the contract she made with an employer or her value to that employer. To a paleoconservative, a woman should, be, should know her place. Collectivists are anti-man. The existence of polar bears takes precedent over the life of man or of individual men. The inanimate earth comes before the thinking human individual. Collectivists are violent. Since an individual is sacrificial to the tribe, the group, the collective, the state, an individual is expendable. Collectivists believe that government is a tool to coerce their neighbors to behave as they see fit, to manipulate their choices, to confiscate their wealth for the good of others, and to punish any who oppose their point of view. Collectivists are irrational. They are quick to judge, superficial in their assessment of the facts regarding issues, and refuse to alter their stance on an issue, even when faced with overwhelming evidence contradicting their beliefs. Collectivists are removed from reality. A group does not think. It has no life of its own which it must protect. It exists as an abstract concept, removed from the necessity of work, production, effort, or creativity. Collectivists do not believe in free will or choice, and I think this is key. They are deterministic. Men are helpless subjects to their environment, their race, their gender, their place of birth, their ethnicity, their culture. Men are mere cogs in a greater machine of humanity to the collectivist. The actions of an individual are insignificant to the greater movement of history and nations. What do you call a collection of collectivists? Just wrong. (laughs) Individualists have the following characteristics. Individualists believe that man is an end unto himself and not a means to the end of others. He is not expendable. He is not to be sacrificed. An individualist recognizes that people may physically differ from one another, but that these differences are superficialities and not significant in any way to the value one man has in dealing with another. An individualist knows that reason is his only means of cognition and of understanding the world, not superstition, not mysticism. He gets information using his mind. An individualist recognizes that his long-term happiness is paramount and that inanimate objects, plants and animals driven by instinct rather than reason, take a back seat to his happiness. Individualists are non-violent. They believe in peaceful coexistence with each other. They trade and deal with others with the consent of others. Individualists believe that there should be a government to pre- prevent others from initiating force, and that government should protect their life, their liberty, their property, and should not be an instrument of wealth confiscation, behavioral manipulation, or coercion. Individualists recognize that the universe exists as it is, and that to change it for its own hap- for his own happiness, he must obey the rules of nature. He knows that wishing something doesn't necessarily make it so. He knows that only through the effort of the mind and body will his environment adapt to suit him, but only within the laws of nature. In this individualists are objective, not subjective. Individualists believe in free will. They believe that in order to survive and achieve happiness on this earth, they they must make the necessary decisions to effectively change their environment to adapt to change, to accrue those things which benefit him, and to get along with others so that others will deal with him without rancor or with, or with remorse. What do you call a collection of individualists? Just right.
2: Back on that planet, why do you think you reacted so differently from the rest of them? Why were you so afraid of becoming an individual?
0: When I was first assimilated into the collective... I was a child. They were assimilated as adults. When our individual memories began to resurface.
2: Yours were of being a little girl. A scared little girl.
0: I let that fear control me. After I saw the drone die in the swamp, I panicked. I began to envision my own death, alone without even the sound of another drone to comfort me. So I forced them to return. I infiltrated their left cerebral hemispheres with nanoprobes and created a new interlink network, one that they couldn't resist. And then I eliminated the evidence of what I'd done.
2: You were overwhelmed by feelings you couldn't begin to understand. You're not responsible for that.
0: Because of what I did, they'll be forced to live the rest of their lives in the collective. For that, I am responsible.
2: There's a difference between surviving and living. They'll survive in the collective, but they won't really be alive. You know that better than any of us.
0: There is no alternative.
2: How long would they survive if the doctor deactivated this interlinked network you created?
0: A month at most.
2: A month as an individual or a lifetime as a drone? Which option would you choose?
0: Survival is insufficient. I beg your pardon? Eight years ago, I forced them to return to the Collective. I won't make the same mistake again. deserve to exist as individuals. We must terminate the link between them.
2: I understand that you feel a certain responsibility for these patients. But as their physician, so do I. It's my duty to preserve their lives for as long as possible. Even if that means... I
0: will not return them to the Borg.
2: Are you thinking of what's best for them? Or for you? Clarify. You said it yourself. You made a mistake. And Seven of Nine doesn't like to make mistakes. She strives for perfection. I want you to think about the motivation behind your decision. Are you doing what's right for those three people? Or are you trying to alleviate the guilt you feel over what happened eight
0: years ago? The damage I did can never be repaired. And my guilt is irrelevant. I simply want them to experience individuality. As I have. As you have. At one time, you were confined to this sick bay. Your program was limited to emergency medical protocols. In some ways, you were not unlike a drone. But you were granted the opportunity to explore your individuality. You were allowed to expand your program. Your mobile emitter gives you freedom of movement. Your thoughts are your own. If you were told you had to become a drone again, I believe you would resist. I suppose I would. They would resist as well. They would choose freedom, no matter how fleeting. Only you and I can truly understand that.
2: Survival is insufficient.
4: You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And thank you to all of our financial supporters who make it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with everyone. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, which are all archived for your listening enjoyment and your convenience. we'll be talking a little more about that in the context of our subject today. What we just heard was a powerful scene from an episode of Voyager, in which the character Seven of Nine, is played by Jerry Ryan, could be viewed, in the context of my discussion today, as a voter. As a voter who took it upon herself to practice some majority rule collectivism on her fellow Borg individualists, whom she forced back into the collective. And in a funny way, that's how democracy works. If the majority decides we're all going to be living in a socialist country, then even us individualists are forced to live in that country. So is mere survival sufficient when so much is possible? Because the choice is between individual and collectivism, as you've been saying, Robert. What's unspoken about the concept of mere survival is the fact that it denotes a life either without purpose or a life in slavery, serving the purpose of others. And that ultimately is the really, really big picture choice that faces democracies with each passing electoral period. And that's also the big value judgment behind what is right and what is wrong. Now we have this question that I want to devote the rest of the show to from our regular listener and supporter, Murray T., who actually writes from Alberta. Hey guys. I have a question I've been stewing on for quite a while and I thought I should throw it out to you along with what I think so far. But first a point of clarity on something I should probably already know by now. You call yourselves, quote-unquote, just right. Do you mean this as in just correct? Or do you mean individualism, reason, capitalism, Aristotle, all things generally associated on the right and correct for that matter? Just a bit confused as I'm currently arguing with a lawyer who teaches political science and is adamant that fascism is on the right. I'm waiting to hear the standard he uses to define right and left. Now, just to get that point out of the way quickly, yes, Murray, you're right. We do mean just correct, and we do mean individualism, reason, capitalism, and Aristotle. You got all that perfect. Yes. And he says, the other question I have is about proper government. Or, how is a government supposed to function? How do we direct government to do things they, quote-unquote, should be doing, if not through voting? I've heard things like voting is not democracy. I think he's referring to things he's heard us say, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, That we're not a democracy. We're a representative democracy. When I talk to average lay people, they seem to think that government's a representative of the people or that it's the medium that the people use to get things done, The political science lawyer guy once said about our NDP government that at least she, Notley, is doing what the people want. uh, Reacting to protesters, I guess. All of those statements don't seem unreasonable, but something's missing. If they're representatives of the people, to whom are they representing us? To dogs and cats? You could say the whole world, I guess, but that leaves out domestic issues. My one thought is that small and local governments could represent the people in their province, state, community to the other local governments. This is the only way I can think of the government as representative of the people. Or a thought just occurred they could mean this as in representing an ideology through a multi-party system. As I type this, I realize I guess I'm not sure exactly how to put my finger on the question, but I guess it's about the role of government. I generally say that the government's role is to basically protect individual rights, but this is a long, long way from the actual role that government plays in our current political environment. And this leads to a large gap when discussing the subject with people. I don't blame the average person to think that I'm some right-wing nut job for even saying this. And, of course, all these conversations lead to the who will build the roads (laughs) discussion. (laughs) It always ends up that way, doesn't it?
3: Actually, who will build the roads, Murray? The same private companies that build them today.
4: I think I might be on to something with the multi-party thing. If and when you have time, let me know your
3: thoughts. God, I hope this isn't as stupid a question as it sounds, <laughs> end mm, quote. <laughs> no, it is, as a matter of fact, it's such a, um, uh, an example of the questions that we get all the time. People just don't, aren't familiar with terms. Like I said, they're amorphous. They keep shifting the terms and and the understanding of what political definitions mean?
4: Well, that's exactly what I wrote to him. I said, you know, the questions that he keeps asking us that he thinks are stupid are some of the most profound questions yeah. we get. But Murray did write back after I wrote him. He said, wow, thanks so much, Bob. Your response surprised me. Maybe because I've largely ignored politics for the first 50 years of my life. I just assume that everyone else has thought these things through and I'm just a babbling idiot. And I ha- that was an amazing admission, Murray, because to that point, I have something rather disturbing to tell you. Most people never think about these things at any point in their lives. It's unfortunately, it's true. They, go, they don't even think about thinking about them. The social and political environment in which we live is shaped by a relative handful of people, and that group is not determined by wealth or connections or power, etc., although each of those things can be an asset or liability. The point is this. Those who shape the society in which they live are those who take political action whether privately, publicly, or officially through the electoral process, such as it is. The vast majority of people who vote are simply followers or opponents of those who take action. But he did offer uh, a response uh, about the definition that his lawyer friend he's arguing with, how he defines fascism. And here is the definition he offered. Quote, Fascism embraces the elitist position that some individuals are superior to others In, in Nazism, the master race. The masses are thought to be ignorant and in the need of rulership by an elite, particularly of one all-powerful leader, a Fuhrer. Having an elitist ruling class is the opposite of theoretical socialism on the left, where all are equal and share equally. Having rule by elites is a characteristic of conservatism on the right, where it is considered inevitable and desirable to have. There is no doubt in practicality, political labels distort the fact there is a vast overlap in beliefs, etc., etc., it's not surprising he's given that definition. Because if you use those, those labels and put fascism on the right and socialism on the left... Well, where does freedom and capitalism fit on that scale? Nowhere. And
3: how does fascism fit on the right if it's also socialist? Yeah,
4: that's, it doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? Those values don't exist on any traditional left-right scale. These freedom and capitalism don't. That's true. Which is one of the main reasons that all the left-right models currently in use are invalid. They do not match reality. The left wing and the right wing are, as we like to say here on this show, just two wings on the same bird flying leftward. All of the traditional left-right models currently being used in broad general use are incorrect because they violate fundamental epistemological rules. Murray's lawyer friend is using a very subjective and non-essential criteria in his definitions of fascism and of socialism, which, as described, is not a condition that exists anywhere on the planet, least of all in the country's most socialist, or as its alternative word is known, communist. Sharing equally? Come on. Sharing what equally? What is that There's no such thing. If all the sharing is equal, why bother? Three people in a room with ten bucks in their wallets, each has to share his ten dollars with the other two guys? <laughs> right? That would be equal sharing, wouldn't it? On that simple level, the theory in practice reveals to be a non-concept. It's ridiculous. It's, it's silly. It's, it's contradictory. And it's not sharing, because sharing's a voluntary action. Whereas the distinguishing characteristic of all of the isms is the initiation of the use of force to carry out their objective. And as to the issue of Nazism and the master race, etc., the elitist phenomenon is one that exists particularly on the left, which, of course, is where all collectivist notions originate. Now, if you go back just a few shows, show 475, we made a very clear distinction of the difference between fascism and socialism, communism, all being collectivist ideologies on the left, and that the only thing that distinguishes fascism is the fact that under fascist governments they leave a lot of private property in the hands of private individuals, but the state still controls them, so it's no different. Well, the In fact, it's worse. If you own a piece of property that you can't control and somebody else gets to control it, but you're responsible for it, that's horrible. I'd rather live in communism than in fascism. I understand two, what you mean, right? yeah, yeah. Now, Murray's dealing with an experience, he's arguing with a lawyer who teaches political science and is adamant that fascism is on the right. It's very reminiscent of the very first time I ever took these fundamental issues to the direct attention of the public in a public discussion forum. All the same issues and questions were at play. All the same labels were being used. So it was going back to September 10th, 1997, and it was my very first ever appearance as a talk show panelist on CJBK AM 1290's Jim Chapman show on a weekly segment that he called Left, Right, and Center, and from which was ultimately born this very show. Just Right is what I'm talking about. Yeah, because Left and Center, Left.
3: Yeah. Or, Or... Went away. Yeah, the left, <laughs> and it left
4: just right. Yeah. So we were just right. <laughs> the thing I most remember about the event was coming to grips with just how confused and completely on the left most people are by default. Because, as noted earlier, hardly any of them have any thought. They haven't thought things through. Some are unable to do so. The reason. Because of epistemology. They're using the wrong words, the wrong concepts, the wrong ideas to work through a problem. And as a
3: result, all roads lead leftward and wrongward. Garbage in, garbage out. That's where you're going to end up. You know, Ayn Rand had a way to deflect and uh, stop that kind of nonsense right at the beginning of any argument. She would say to a person who made any pronouncement, Define your terms, and Mary, I would I would suggest you do that to your lawyer friend. Say, okay, what do you mean by fascism? Define the well, right. That's
4: what he's done, and he's got his his definition. And now we realize it's 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 a popular one. It's a, it's the one used to distinguish the right wing from the left wing. Mm. But both of those wings are on the left. So if you want evidence that the labels fascist and Nazi are favorites of the left that they try to pin on the right, and that this is nothing new or unique to 2016. Here's a sample. Yes, believe it or not, my very first regular radio appearance, though I didn't know it at the time, on a weekly basis. It was a conversation that began on September 10, 1997, and continues to this very day.
6: This is Left, Right, and Center on Talk of the Town with Robert Metz on the right, Josh Lemmer on the left, and let's find out where caller Gord is. Good morning, Gord. Hi, how are you? Fine, thanks.
7: Okay, I think you should change your name of your show though to Left, Right, Right there, Jim.
3: <laughs>
7: <laughs> but anyhow, uh, Mr. Metz, uh, you say that uh, there's unlimited wealth in the world. Well, if that's the case, what do you got against giving it some to the poor? And uh, I don't
1: have anything do, against uh, giving it to the poor. What I have what a problem with it, is... Uh,
7: this- what Mother Teresa did, you would be against that. No, I wouldn't. Why would I?
1: Who, who did Mother heck? Teresa? Why, why help the who, poor? Well, who did Mother Teresa force to help her? You know, a lot of people look at Mother Teresa and look at a person who who makes that kind of a sacrifice, and they and they draw a virtue from it. And and personally, I don't think she was making a sacrifice. I think she was doing what she wanted to do. She was doing her job, just as people were discussing earlier in the program, just as Lady Di was doing her job. And, you know, this is a vow that I understand that, that nuns take. I'm surprised that every nun in the Roman Catholic Church around the world isn't doing the same thing. Is, is she an exception to the rule?
7: I but, don't know. You know, we, we've advanced from the feudal system and we come to a caring society. And like you said, there's unlimited wealth. If that's the case, what do you have against the welfare state?
1: Because, because how a person obtains the wealth matters. Would you like the idea of somebody coming up to you and taking your money from you without your consent?
7: Well, it is with my consent. That's the Sorry? thing. The welfare state is with well, my. Well, if consent. it's with
1: your consent, I wouldn't have a problem with it, and I'd be all for voluntary welfare state taxes. If you want to pay your welfare taxes and you want to do it voluntarily, uh, go ahead and do so, and I'll just have to ask you a question. Why do you think it isn't voluntary? They haven't voted for the Freedom Because party. there's a lot of greed in the world, that's why. Well... That's true, and and therefore we should not have a social system that's based on greed. And I would say that socialism is is the greed system. Look, what's the, what is greed? I think greed is wanting to live at somebody else's expense, not wanting to keep your own money that you've earned to live at your own expense and not be a burden on someone else. I think the it's idea that we turned can... this word around is is a moral aberration. Well, there's exploitation
7: too. There's, well, exploitation you again. Call, uh, um,
1: Give me an example. On, on
7: level. Well, the feudal system is wonderful, well, man. We, we have it all over, over the world. I mean, if
1: people. I'm not here to defend the feudal system. But to so say that you're like not like greed you amongst want, the like business the class, that's an astonishing remark. And it, it's good to right say it, because it does the comment to everybody wants to. But if you seriously suggest money. that the fellow who takes home $4 million is not doing it because he's greedy and that he has some kind of a higher moral plane than the rest of us, that's an astonishing remark. I, well, I, I'll tell you but something. But I also I find it astonishing that you don't believe, think what Mother Teresa did was a good thing.
6: Well, he did not say that at all. He said she was just doing her job and all men should do the same thing. No, But he did not say that that wasn't. Isn't not a good thing? All right. Well, perhaps
1: so. I guess what and when you said that, I was interested in finding out what you think about whether, for instance, b- business people, wealthy people, should they contribute to their society? Should they? They do. They pay the highest uh, rate of income. Partner, <laughs> just finish for a moment. Should they do charity work? Should they try and help people who are poor, they who do. are hungry? Should they try and help children
6: to become educated? No, I understand they, they do. do, but I'm Hello? asking, should they? Yeah, well, go ahead, Guard.
7: Okay, I just want, you know, Mr. See, Mr. Metz seems to think that the golden rule, he who has to go makes the rules, and i got nothing against profits. What I have against right now, it seems a, almost like a, a, a Nazi mentality. Let's blame that Well, that's some. it.
6: That's it. Thanks for coming on. Oh. I will not put up with that kind of crap on this radio program. If you have a position something political or an economic and you want to make it, then you go ahead and make it, and you back it up. You don't start using words like Nazi on this show. I will not allow that. We're going to pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Very often, and I do not like to ever do, I cut a caller off, but I will do that if people try to use this program uh, as a platform for ill-considered and ill-informed uh, um, um, diatribes. That's not what it's for. You start throwing words like Nazi around with re- relevance to the kind of discussion we're having today. Totally inappropriate and just betrays the, lackers of the uh, caller's lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I won't let that happen. Anybody who phones and tries to take the show in that direction is not going to get a hearing on this program. Other than that, you're free to say anything you want. And in fact, we welcome your calls and
4: comments. You can, of course, hear that entire original AM broadcast of the first Left, Right & Center online at www.justrightmedia.org. Just check the button that says Left, Right & Center, right? Now, actually, I would have preferred to directly address and answer the caller's allusions to Nazi in that call, by the way, that caller Gord became a regular and engaged caller on the show following this, this original call. I don't think he really meant to be uh, insulting, as Jim thought, because I think he was asking a legitimate question. Everything that Gord, the caller, assumed about me was incorrect because of how he had been taught to identify the political spectrum without freedom being on the scale. If the freedom's not on the scale, where do they put you? Uh, it's funny, too. i was listening to the U.S. election results on an American AM radio station Tuesday night, and I heard one of the commentators mention that Europeans see both Republicans and Democrats in the states as being on the right, whereas the commentators themselves saw the Democrats as being on the left, the Republicans too far on the right, and whereas here on just right, we see both Democrats and Republicans as being generally on the left. What a difference. So to Murray's question, how do we direct government to do the things they should be doing if not through voting? Yes, I have often repeated that voting is not democracy, while at the same time I've repeated that voting does indeed change things. But voting is the final act, not the ongoing process in a legitimate functioning democracy. Voting is not exclusive to democracy, but is also a process used to arrive at group consensus in non-democratic countries, corporations, partnerships, even hobby associations. So voting is not the criteria. It's not the essential. There's only one way to direct government to do the things that they should, quote-unquote, be doing, and that's the political party structure and being active within that effort between elections and during elections. Political parties pre-establish the choices and options that voters get to vote for. So that's why I suggest that voting is the final step in the process. If there's only one political party to vote for, you only get one political direction as an option. The number of voters who turn out will not change the outcome one iota under such a circumstance. And if you've got three parties all pointed in the same political direction, that's the direction the government will head since the three are essentially the same as having the one. And this describes the situation in Ontario at present. Political parties are the places where policies and electoral choices are created in the first place. Now, I recall having a good chuckle when I first heard the quote, if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal, quote-unquote. You ever heard that one? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And there's some truth in that, but only in one single very narrow context, which I shall identify momentarily. Because, in fact, voting always changes things. But the changes are not in terms of political parties, per se. Voters change things by maintaining the status quo and the status quo. When voters elect Ontario's Liberal wins government several times in a row, that does not imply that there are no changes going on. Look at the changes that have been occurring in Ontario simply during the latest round of Liberal rules profound. Voters are, ch- are changing things. Our province is politically in shambles. Increased deficits and debts are the legacy of political party after political party in the legislature. The once beautiful countryside in southern Ontario, now littered with ugly wind turbines that are forcibly paid for by Ontario taxpayers, our health care system being increasingly rationed, not less so, while waiting lists continue to increase. Electricity is becoming unaffordable. I could go on and on. So there's a lot of changes going on thanks to voters voting for those very changes. But here's the catch, of course. Often the changes that voters are supporting are not the ones they expected. So whether it's the consequence of corruption or mere ignorance, you know, good in theory, bad in practice, the anger and frustration building between voters and their governments is reaching a peak of sorts while at the same time, everyone's forced dependence on government and centralized economic planning with its crony politics have become increasingly entrenched. Now, having said all of that, let me now also suggest that there's a great deal of truth in the quote. If voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. If by anything we mean the status quo political parties then that is exactly what they would do. They are making it illegal in Ontario. Bingo. In fact, they're doing it right now in the home province of Ontario, as we saw it being done during the past American presidential election. It's precisely because voting changes things that all of the corruption to prevent voting from changing things takes place and continues to do so. So we deal with labels, and labels are a form of representation. Because both philosophy and politics are fields of abstractions. It is a natural tendency for people to want to concretize those abstractions into something much more physical or metaphysical. Better still, into something visual, like colors, shapes, symbols. We may use a dollar sign for money. We may use a heart symbol to indicate love or just a like on Facebook. (laughs) An example of the most widely understood and used abstraction is money itself, specifically the dollar. The idea of a dollar is a pure abstraction, yet it is real. The abstract dollar is represented in physical form in many ways, from fiat paper currency to gold and and precious metals, and when expressed in terms of dollars. But gold is not a dollar, it's still gold. Paper is not a dollar, it's still paper, etc. So what is a dollar? It's an expression of a financial value, relative to other values and measured in terms of dollars, a number of dollars. It is relative in the sense that we can say that a car is worth mo- worth a great number of dollars relative to a chocolate bar, which is worth perhaps even less than a dollar. Even numbers themselves are complete abstractions. You'll never see a three lying on a sidewalk. You might f- find three of something, <laughs> but the but the thing you find will not be a three. <laughs> okay? What gives the car and the chocolate bar its value? Only the will of those who do the valuing, which can change with each passing day, minute and hour. And so, you see, ideas are abstractions, and ideas are also very real, as real as anything concrete if and when put into action. And you know that statement, ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble, goes the old saying, it's what they do know that just ain't so. And, in other words, the person who knows he can fly and jumps off a cliff to his death is an example of a person who knew something that wasn't so, okay? And that pretty much sums up the entire field of politics today. So, as to the issue of representation, in actual fact, MPs and MPPs do not represent their constituents' wishes or desires, but represent both their constituents to the crown and the crown to their subjects, and vice versa. That's sort of more of the parliamentary system, if you want to use the word uh, democratic representatives. But it's a minor point. And they also represent their parties to to both, quote, the government or the crown and to the people. In another sense, a representative represents a number of people in a given constituency, Government would become dysfunctional and no longer be democratic if it degenerated into mere one-man-one-vote-majority rule system, which is what Trudeau wants to do. So representation also refers to ideas, philosophies, and ideologies. And the representation can be a color in politics. It's blue, red, orange, green, black, and white, a shape or a logo, symbol, even a label, like left and right. And that's the biggie. To borrow from the alt-right review of Stephen Molyneux, I saw that that you had there, they, they uh, called him a libertarian who they say is, quote, headed to the right as his videos increasingly focus on race and IQ, the anti-Semitic ideas of Kevin MacDonald and the realities of black on white crime, end quote. That, that's ridiculous. If the right, get this, now, if the right is to be identified as racist, anti-Semitic and IQ-obsessed and dealing with black and white crime, and if the left is anti-capitalistic and collectivist, then where on the left-right spectrum is freedom and capitalism? Where the hell do we sit? There's no room for us in there. We've been shoved off the scale, which brings us back to Murray's original dilemma. He couldn't find a correct label or position on the political measurement scale, although he didn't put it in exactly those words. Is freedom on the left or on the right? If fascism is on the extreme right, on the left-right scale, and communism on the extreme left, freedom's been eliminated from that scale, invalidating the whole left-right spectrum. As for those who would think that freedom is in the middle or in the center between fascism and communism, that's not possible. You don't get freedom by mixing fascism and communism in equal quantities. That's (laughs) ridiculous. That's what Hitler did, by the way. Which means... Bottom line, that the current left-right labeling scale and system is wrong. It does not reflect the reality of the possible real political options ranging from tyranny on the left to freedom on the right, the ultimate two conditions related to each. So in epistemological terms, the essential distinctions are missing from definitions. By essential, we mean the black and white differences, individualism on the right, collectivism on the left, Free enterprise on the right, state monopolies and crony politics on the left, life, liberty, and property on the right versus socialism, communism, fascism, and a myriad of progressive anti-concepts on the left. The philosophic axioms of reality, reason, self, and consent on the right versus the philosophic axioms of fantasy, whim, altruism, and force on the left. In the end, the final reliable rule, as always, is define, or be defined. Labels are important. Alt-right is a label. Left-wing is a label. Right-wing is a label, as are left and right. The definition that best describes any particular label is the definition that most aligns with reality and reason, a definition that has no contradictions within its application, a definition that distinguishes essentials, not just processes, in terms of ideas. So, to borrow from Murray's own question, when we say that we're just right, do we mean this as, as in just correct, individualism, reason, capitalism, Aristotle, all things generally associated on the right and correct for that matter? Geez, I think we may be looking at a new closer for the show, Robert. <laughs> we'll use that. That time has arrived when we must invite you to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color color it to black and white Under the clothes, Everything
5: will be alright Oh, this one's gonna get me in trouble. I... <laughs> Not with Hillary. You know, the President told me to stop whining. But I really have to say, the media is even more biased this year than ever before. Ever. You want the proof? Michelle Obama gives a speech, and everyone loves it. It's fantastic. They think she's absolutely great. My wife, Melania, gives the exact same speech. And people get on her case. And I don't get it. I don't know why.